So we're in the series Unveiling, the book of Revelation, and in the sub-series, Be Not Afraid. The first words that the resurrected Lord said to John in the book of Revelation, don't be afraid. So today I want to read verses, we're in chapter 1, I want to read verses 4 through 8. Now don't get too excited thinking, oh, we're going to cover four verses today, uh, because it'll probably take us five weeks to cover these four verses. But, you know, get used to that, you know, saturation. So it reads like this, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's the title of this message, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Lord, open our eyes, unveil truth to us here this morning, and deepen our relationship and our commitment to you, and to serving the world, advancing your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A little preliminary word before I get into the meat of this, this, this text. The preliminary word is about the author, John. I haven't actually said anything about him yet. Uh, and maybe a lot of you were assuming that uh, the author of the, the Apocalypse uh, is the same as the author of the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, the Apostle John. That has been, that was the assumption of the early church. And it's been the assumption through most of the church throughout all of history. Uh, though today there's a lot of scholars who argue against that, that this was just a different John uh, who was an overseer of these, these seven churches. He's not the Apostle. And the main reason they think that is because, one, John doesn't identify himself as the apostle. You might think he'd say, hey, John, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the churches, you know, etc. He just says John. And the style, and even some of the theological concepts in the book of Revelation seem very different from what you find in the gospel of John. So a lot of scholars uh, today uh, question the, the apostolic authorship of, of this book. For my two cents, it seems to me that the early church was in a much better position to know the author of the book than we are today. Uh, and there's the, this continuity of the, of the tradition there. Um, and the stylistic differences can mainly be accounted for by the virtue of the fact that a uh, gospel's a gospel, but the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. It's, it's, it's apocalyptic literature. And as we've said before, apocalyptic literature is weird. It's got weird symbolism and all sorts of things. Um, it is true that the, the, the syntax of the book of Revelation is some scholars have even argued that Greek wasn't his original language because he makes some grammatical mistakes. Though, if you read it very carefully, some of the things that look like grammatical mistakes actually turn out to be on purpose and serve a point, and we'll get to that a little bit here later on today. So, um, and he, you know, he's writing to these seven churches. He's clearly familiar with them. They recognize his authority, so he doesn't need to say, hey, I'm the apostle. They already know that. And it might be the case that John, he's giving a revelation of Jesus Christ here, and so he doesn't really consider himself the author. You know, this is just coming directly from Jesus. So those things can, it seems to me that 
the weight of the evidence is on the traditional apostolic authorship of the book of Revelation. And if you disagree with that, you're a skeretic hum- heretic scum who's going to burn in the lake of fire forever and ever. <laughs> so there you go. Just kidding. So today, I want to look at this phrase, who was, who is, and who is to come, okay? And what I want to show is how this applies to God in the book of Revelation, but also how it applies to the slain lamb, to Jesus Christ, all right? Uh, I think, uh, it, and then we'll draw three implications of this. It says that God always was. He, he's the one who was, who is, and, and, and is to come. The connotation of it is he's all, he always was, he always is, and he's always to come. There's always more of him to come. This became kind of a way of identifying God, a, a, a distinguishing God from everything else. His eternality, his always wasness. God, unlike everything that we think about, everything we experience in this world, God never began. And God has no boundaries. And so this, this, this identification of God's eternality, his always wasness, uh, is the distinguishing mark of, of deity. It separates God from all the rest of, 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 of creation. Um, and we find this, 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 this tag being applied to God throughout the book of Revelation. I'll give you a few more examples. Uh, in in uh, uh, Revelation 1-4, we saw, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And then four verses later, we saw it. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. And then in uh, chapter 4, when John is brought up into the throne room and starts to have this spectacular vision that we'll get to in a little bit, a little bit being a year from now or whatever, and he says... He sees these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, and they're full of eyes all around and inside. Look at eyes on the inside. Let's unpack that. Day and night, I told you bizarre images. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, as we sang here this morning. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And then finally, at the end, and by the way, you're going to be getting a whole lot of scripture here this morning. Better a little, and you're free to say amen too. I, I, I want to give it permission. It's okay to I call and response. All right, amen. all right. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> I have a Pentecostal background, you know. I can handle it. And then finally, Revelation 21, uh, the la- next to last chapter, we read. Then he said to me, "It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life." Alpha and the Omega were the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so it's just a way of saying, go back as far as you want to go, and I am there. Go forward as far as you want to go, I am there, the beginning and the end. There's no bounds here. It denotes God's transcendence. And uh, the transcendent one, who's always been, says, anyone who is thirsty, come and drink, because I got eternal water to give. And we drink from that, and we gain eternal life. So, so... You have this identification as God as the one who, in contrast to all of creation, who always was, always is, and always will be. Now, I mentioned last week that in the book of Revelation, there's over half the book is, alludes to the Old Testament. Memory serves me right. There's like 428 verses in the book of Revelation, and 278 of them are allusions. I'm pulling that out of my memory, which... It's probably not reliable, but it's pretty close. There's a lot of allusions, not quotes. He doesn't quote scripture. He never mentions it, but he uses phrases. And for the folks, his audience who are steeped in the Old Testament, they'll catch these allusions. And what we'll see as we go throughout the book of Revelation is that when you look back at what he's alluding to, it fills out the meaning 
of, 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 of the picture that he's giving us. It's, it's actually really brilliant. So this idea of God's eternality being his name, the thing that identifies him, these are based on two sources in the Old Testament. The first one is where Yahweh is speaking to Moses, and he's trying to get Moses to go down into Egypt and to call the people out of Egypt. And at one point, Moses says this. He says, Moses, he says, if I come to the Israelites and, and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. I am that I am. Now there's been a whole lot of ink spilled over this passage throughout history, a lot of different angles and takes on it. I'll share with you the one that I find the most plausible uh, about what's going on in this passage. Uh, in the ancient Near East, to get the name of a deity was a way of having some measure of control over them, to call upon his deity. Um, and so Moses says, what's your name? And Yahweh responds by saying, Vehiyeh Vehiyeh, is how I was taught to pronounce it. Vehiyeh Vehiyeh, I am that I am. Or it has a connotation of I, I, I will be whatever I will be. Uh, and the force of that is to say this, Moses, don't think that you can pin me down with your labels. I thought I'd at least get an amen from the tap folks here because that's what we stand for. We, you, you leave all labels at the door when you go to a, a tap dance party. No, you don't think you can put me into your little confines, your little structures, your little thought categories. I'm, I'm beyond all of that. And so this I am statement is really a, an expression of complete transcendence. God's superiority is supremeness. I am. Uh, unlike everything else that exists in this world, everything here is, depends on something else to exist. And eventually it goes out of existence, but God depends on nothing. He's self-existent. I am that I am. So when you, they ask, if they want to know who sent you, just say the I, I am has sent you to them. Now here's the thing. That I am expresses the, kind of the, the mysterious transcendence of God. We know, we know who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. We know the character of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But what this passage is indicating is that there's a dimension of God, the I amness of God, the eternality of God that goes beyond anything that we can comprehend. So we don't know what God is. God's being is a mystery. But we do know who God is. Are you following this? Dan Kent made that distinction last night. I thought, I'm, I'm going to plagiarize that. We can't know what God is, but we do know who God is. We can't conceive of what God is. Try to conceive of a God who never began, a God who has no boundaries. You can't do it. You'll, you'll, get a, you'll, you'll sprain your brain if you try. Uh, try to imagine, uh, let's try it. Try to imagine there being an outer limit to space. If space is finite, there's an outer limit. But see, you can't conceive of that because what's one inch outside of that limit? More space. So let's get rid of that. We can't conceive of space being finite, so let's just conceive it as being infinite. Go ahead, try. It goes on forever. No, you can't conceive of that either, can you? So it's either finite or infinite. It's got to be one or the other, but we can't conceive of either, and yet space clearly exists because we're taking up some of it. Right? It's inconceivable. And so this dimension of God, a God who has no boundaries, who had no beginnings, who depends on nothing, it's, this is the part of God that's absolutely inconceivable. It's the otherness of God, the transcendence of God. I am. I will be whatever I will be. Don't think you can pin me down to your categories. And then the second source that comes out of Isaiah. Uh, we find this phrase several times in Isaiah where the Lord says, uh, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. 
And beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Is there anything like God? And the answer is no. Uh, it, everything else is finite. Everything else begins. Everything else ends. Everything else takes a finite space. But God has no boundaries, has no beginnings, it has no end. This is the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, or the holiness of God. A holy means set apart, distinct from. The, and, and, and so I think it's so important that we retain this. We emphasize, as we should emphasize, that in Christ, God has become intimate with us. Uh, and, and in Christ, he, he, he loves us, and, and he becomes our friend. All that is true. But we must never forget that God is God. And, and that reduced Jesus to just be one of our buddies. Yeah, he, he's, our, he's our best friend. But he's not like any other friend. Remember the godness of God. And as we sang it this morning, holy, holy, holy. Set apart. You are other. You are different from. You're transcendent. You're infinite. You're, and, and part of what worship is is just being awed at that. I mean, wow. Worship is at its heart. It's just like, wow. And, and you praise because as Jerry was talking about, like, why do we do this? What's well, a natural expression? When you see beauty, when you see transcendence, when you see this glory, they go, whoa, holy. You're set apart. There's no words for it. (laughs) He transcends our words, praise God. Never forget that. Reverence God, the Almighty. We know who God is, and and, and we have to always trust that, his character. But what God is goes beyond anything that we can can imagine. So he's the first, he's the last. Alpha and Omega. But now here's what is really Shocking. And that is that that title, that distinguishing thing that sets God apart from everything else. We find Jesus in the book of Revelation making that same claim. In fact, he makes it right here in the first chapter. Verse 17 uh, of, of chapter 1. This is where John is first encountering the Lord. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So the sight of this, the transcendent Jesus, and, and I, as I mentioned last week, John sometimes uses surrealistic, very bizarre imagery to translate transcendence, otherness, strangeness, the difference of God. So John's encountering this transcendent Jesus, and in this moment, he becomes like one of those sheep. You ever see the, or goats, when there's a noise, they just drop over dead? The car backfires. It's hilarious. Well, that's what John did. Jesus Christ, boom, he falls over so then Jesus puts his hand on him and says, and says this, don't be afraid. That's our sub-series. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. I have the keys of death and Hades. Don't be afraid, John. He says, don't be afraid, John. I am the first and the last. How is that supposed to reassure him? <laughs> don't be afraid, John. I, I'm the transcendent one. I, but see, he's saying... I am the transcendent one. He's claiming this divine tag for himself. I'm the first and I'm the last. But don't be afraid. Why? Because you know who I am. I was dead. I gave my life for you. Uh, But I'm alive forevermore. And because I live, you shall live too. Uh, So don't be afraid, John. Yeah, I know I look big and scary and you think about God and he's a transcendent and all the rest of that. But but you got to know, as mysterious as what God is, you got to know who God is and he's the one who gave his life for you. The one who always has been, who always will be, has poured himself utterly out for us on the cross, praise God. The one who always was and who always is, is pure, unadulterated, unfathomable, unwavering love. Hallelujah. Don't be afraid, John. Yeah, the transcendent one, he's on your side. He's got, he's got, he, he, he's got your best interest in mind. He's, his, his very nature is other-oriented love. 
And remember, so Jesus says, I'm the first and I'm the last. But in Isaiah 44, we find that the one who says, I'm the first and I'm the last, he also says, beside me there is no God. Right? Who, I'm the first, I'm the last, beside me there is no God. And Jesus says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Beside me there is no God. And what's going on here is that Jesus, the man Jesus, he, be, he was born in 6 B.C., or 5 B.C., right around there. He died sometime late 20s, uh, the first century. And yet, this man is here being revealed, the unveiling of Jesus is, is it's being revealed. This man is also the embodiment of Yahweh. He has, he has this identity of the eternal one. He always has been one. And so Jesus here makes the claim that Yahweh makes. I am that I am. And he doesn't just do it once. In chapter 2, we read it again. I told you there's going to be a lot of scripture. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, he says, these are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Clearly referring to Jesus. And then in the last chapter, we read this, chapter 22. He says, see, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay everyone according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Hallelujah. So uh, you couldn't get a clear uh, expression of, of, of the Lamb's divinity, of his, of his deity. If you ever are fortunate enough to have Jehovah, Jehovah Witnesses come to your door and want to witness with, you know, witness to you, I always make this deal with them. I'll give you 20 minutes to talk, and you give me 20 minutes to talk, and then, then we can go from there. Because if you don't make that deal, you'll never get a word in edgewise. So... And let them talk and get it all out. And then when it's your turn to talk, give them this material. Because, see, they think Jesus is just an angel. But Jesus is not just an angel, not even an archangel. Uh, the Lamb of God who was slain is one with the God who says, I always was, I always am, I always will be. Hallelujah. Uh, you're talking very deity here. You're talking about Jesus Christ. And that's why in the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God is worshipped as well as the Father, God the Father on the throne. Uh, and every Jew knows that you only worship God. Worship is ascribing ultimate worth to something, and we should only do that to God. And yet here, the Lamb is being worshipped as God. Uh, it's holy, holy, holy. We find this throughout the whole book. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and glory and blessing. Over and over again, we hear that. And see, twice John, he gets a little screwed up because he's having these surrealistic, you know, images. And, and twice an angel shows up and the angel is so glorious. John thinks that the angel is a manifestation of God. So John falls down as dead and starts to worship this, this, this angel. And in both cases, the angel says, don't do that. And there's an urgency to the angel's voice. I'm going to get in trouble if you just keep doing that. You worship God. I'm a fellow worshiper like you. Okay, so for, worship is forbidden of angels, forbidden of people, forbidden of anything except God, and yet here we find that the Lamb of God is worshipped. Hallelujah. And, and, and sometimes, and I follow, this is, this is a, a geek moment, but it's worth it. So follow this geek moment. But sometimes John, in fact, consistently, when John's referring to uh, God and the Lamb, especially when he's describing worship to them, he uses a, the singular personal pronoun, he. Not they, he. In fact, we read the passage earlier. Uh, uh, Revelation 1 is an example of this. To him, verse 5, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins 
by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. So he's clearly talking about Jesus. But then he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Well, here's what's odd is that you just mentioned God the Father, and usually you worship God the Father. <laughs> to him be glory and honor. And so, but this passage is all about Jesus. And so you're wondering, well, are we supposed to worship God the Father or are we supposed to worship Jesus? He only refers to he. Who does the he refer to? Well, the answer is both. The answer is both. And John does it consistently enough that he's not making a grammatical mistake. This is by design. He's expressing that there's two agents here in some sense, but in some sense they're one. And then whenever he describes the, the God or the Lamb acting, you know, in Greek you can have a plural or a singular verb. And whenever he uses the verb for the, for the Lamb or, or, and God, he always uses a singular verb. Two, two agents, but one being. What's going on here is John is just beginning to hammer out kind of the, the language that will eventually evolve into uh, the language about the Trinity. But John is here in a brilliant way unveiling this truth that this lamb, the slain lamb, is, is the manifestation of the one true God and shares in the identity of the one true God. And that is why he is called the faithful witness. The faithful witness. God becoming a human being, and as that human being, he puts on display perfectly the character of Abba Father. Uh, he is a perfect witness to that, to that character. And this, brings, this is a central motif throughout the whole book of Revelation. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ unveiled to be? Well, it turns out he is the one who puts on display perfectly the character of the, the God who always was, always is, and always will be. He is the one who has dispelled the, the deception of the enemy throughout the book of the Revelation. And you find this throughout the, the, the New Testament. Um, the world is depicted as being under deception. And there's an enemy who deceives people, especially about the character of God, and especially about what kind of power wins in the end. And so it goes back to Genesis 3, and we see in Revelation it completes a lot of motifs that run throughout the whole Bible. It's a very fitting end to the whole canon. And so in Genesis 3, the enemy lies about God, comes to Eve and says, Did God say you shouldn't eat any, any tree in the garden? Well, he's lying. And, 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 he, and the enemy paints God out to be this Machiavellian, manipulative control freak. Makes the same accusation in the book of Job, in the first two chapters of the book of Job. And so the first thing he goes after are people's picture of God. Because if you screw up a person's picture of God, you screw up their relationship with God. You screw up their source of life, and now you've won if you're the enemy. And so throughout the ages, we've had endless numbers of, of ugly pictures of God and the gods. But Jesus Christ comes into this world to end this dispute once and for all. We live under this mystery. I know this God is mysterious. What's his character like? What's he going to do? What's his plan? You know, is he manipulating us? Is he going to you know, torment us or whatever? Jesus shows up to put an end to that question, to put an end to this dispute. This is what God really looks like. Yes, God is so mysterious when we're talking about who God is or what God is. But this is what God, this is the who of God. This is the character of God. If we trust this, it will put an end to all these questions and struggles and giving the enemy a foothold to get in and start screwing up our heart and our minds with his lies. Hallelujah. So, so what, this, what, 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 the, what Revelation unveils about this lamb is that the, the, the God who always was and who always is and who always will be, that God, the one who's almighty and he's got all the power and he can crush all of his enemies in an instant if, if that's what he was about, 
But instead, this God who always was, always is, always will be, the eternal one, he becomes a human being and bears the sin of the world in order to redeem the world. And out of love for his enemies, he gives his life for his enemies. You see, and, and that is what God is like. That's what the eternal one is like. That's what the creator is like. He gives his life for his enemies rather than crushing them. And folks, that is good news because on one level, we've all been the enemy of God. We've all been at odds with God. But his love, praise God, has reconciled us and brought us back into the family of God. And now we're united with him and one with him. Hallelujah. So real quick, three implications of this. Um, and we'll continue this next week. But three implications. Number one, if we trust that Jesus is the faithful witness, then we're able to discern truth from error can distinguish truth from deception. And it's so important because, as I said, this world is under deception. There's fake news everywhere. And that's just out of a physical level, but at a spiritual level, there's deception everywhere. But if we trust that God has this, 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 this uh, slain lamb character, this other-oriented character, we're able to distinguish what is of God and what's not of God. Otherwise, it's just a blur. If, if you really trust the character of the slain lamb, you, you, you can stop blaming God for all the stuff that Satan does and all the stuff that people do, all right? What Satan does, what people do, what angels do, that's one thing. Don't blame it on God. Know the character of God. And, and you'll know when God is working because that character gets manifested. So if you're looking at the horror of what's going on this last week and maybe horror that's going to be escalating this week, Lord help us, don't look for God in, 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 in the, the power brokers and the ones who are dropping the bombs and shooting the guns and, 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 and fighting Maybe in the name of their God, they would beat up the other God. I don't know. Don't, that's not where you're going to find the slain lamb. No, in the midst of this horror and the ugliness and all the rest, where there are little acts of compassion, where people have mercy on one another, where people find creative ways of avoiding violence rather than running headlong into it, where you have people saving lives rather than killing lives, where you have people forgiving others. That's where the lamb is at work because that reflects the character of Almighty God. Amen. And see, the enemy has been so deceptive throughout history, and no more so than today, and, and getting people to trust the wrong kind of power. You just get enough guns, get enough bombs, get enough bullets, then, then you get to win. And the whole history of the human race proves that that's not the case. But we keep doing it over and over again. It's a broken record. It's a merry-go-round. The lamb comes and says, no, don't trust the power of Babylon, the power of coercion, the power of force, the power of the beast. And we'll see throughout the book of Revelation, that's the kind of power that, that the beast yields. That's the kind of power that the empire, the empire lives by. But the lamb comes and says, no, the kind of power that wins in the end is the power that always was and always is and always will be. And that's the power of other-oriented love. Hallelujah. The one thing that is eternal. Praise God. Second thing is, 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 is this. We, if we really trust the character of the lamb, then we know who we're supposed to follow. Uh, and it makes it so simple. Pattern your life on the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, Christians are described as those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's just a way of saying, do whatever you see the Lamb doing. Mimic, mimic the Lamb. Embody that kind of love. Because the, the goal of the whole thing here is we follow the faithful witness, Jesus Christ, in order to become faithful witnesses. So our character also will reflect the character of the one who always was and always is, and always has more to come. Because when the kingdom comes in fullness, that's all there's going to be. <laughs> this kingdom is, is, is now going to be, and we'll talk, pick this up next week, but the, the kingdom will share in this always oneness, this eternality, and everything that's consistent with the character of God, that bears witness to the character of God, the lamb character of God, that will be present in the kingdom, and everything else will be done away with. 
That's what the, the final judgment's all about. So the goal of our life is to become faithful witnesses by following the faithful witness. It brings me back to what we talked about last week, about keeping the word, letting it saturate, make, bringing it on the inside, living in this Christ, the, the story, the gospel story, and make it a part of your daily life. Monday morning, and Tuesday morning, and throughout the week, be a kingdom ambassador. Know who you are. Remember who you are. Remember the story that you're a part of. All of that is, is following the Lamb. And finally, three, we have, if we trust the character of this slain Lamb, that that is the character of God, we can have a confident hope in the future. And boy, do we need that now. So they're all the revelation, and this is true of the whole New Testament. Jesus is going to, in the end, appear. Parousia. It means appear. Um, he'll be manifest. In some sense, Jesus is already here, but his presence will be manifested. And that's always good news in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation. And we're, we're to live as though that could happen at any moment. Uh, living in that, that, that anticipation and with that sense of urgency. And after a week like this week, I don't think that should be hard to do. <laughs> Let's live as though Jesus is going to come back any moment. Because it kind of looks like he might. And it, it's getting that way. And see, here's the thing. Um, this Jesus, he died for us, and now he's alive forevermore. And because he gave his life for us, he's called the firstborn. You read that in the passage at the start. He's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And because he rose, we have this assurance that in the end, we will rise. And the resurrection is the victory of this other-oriented love, the Calvary kind of love. And in this world, it doesn't look like it's winning. It usually looks like it's losing, but we have to trust that in the end, things are going to look very different. On Friday, it looks like God's losing, but on, on Easter morning, it's a whole different story. So we trust in that, and, and we'll be raised with him. And um, if, if God has the slain lamb character, then and if we really trust that, that in God, there is, there's, he's light and there is no darkness, there's no malice, there's nothing other than this love, then you know that however else, whatever terrible things may be coming as a part of the story that we're a part of right now, this story's going to end very, very well. If, 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 if the creator is an all-good creator, all-loving creator, then he's going to do right by everybody. He's going to do right by everybody. Um, there'll be justice there because love includes justice. Um, but that's also part of the good news. Hallelujah. Uh, whatever your eschatology is, picture it ending in a way that is consistent with the character of God that's revealed on Calvary. Trust God. He'll do right by everybody. I, I, I'm going to end with this. In 1989, some of you are old enough to remember this, uh, they, Jacob Wetterling was kidnapped and um, right here in Minnesota. And I've always had uh, a thing about children suffering. It triggers my own kind of stuff, abandonment issues. Suffering of children, you know, if I was in charge, it'd be a rule that no human beings under the age of six, at least, are allowed to suffer anything. <laughs> Give them a f couple of years. I get free will. I get all of that. I honor it. I get it. But when kids suffer, it's just like the cost is too much, it feels like. So I, I, I was really upset after this when Jacob Rowling was, was kidnapped. And I, there was a time where I was praying. It was a couple of days after the kidnapping. And, and I was just grieving over this thing. I, it got under my skin. Like, like this week has got under my skin. And... Um, in prayer, I, I suddenly got this, a picture, and this is how God usually communicates with me most tenderly. Uh, it's, it's, something pops into my head that I know that I would not have created that. And so I'm praying, and all of a sudden I get an image of this um, a playground. 
And there's all these children playing in this playground, and there's Jesus in the middle of this playground. And then I noticed that all the children were dressed up in concentration camp uniforms. And they had the concentration camp numbers on, on them. And, um, and they're in this playground, and some are on swings, and some are on teeter-totters. But they're all having a blast, and some of them are climbing on Jesus, and a few are pulling on his beard, and he's laughing. So he's just having a great time. And it's all laughter. And I'm looking at this in my grieving state and just kind of puzzled by it all. And then Jesus, as the kids are climbing on him, and he looks over to me and makes eye contact with me with those loving eyes. And he just says, Greg, you're going to have to trust me on this one. I plan on making it up to the kids. I'll make it up to the children. And I don't have to know how he's going to do that. I don't have to know the detail. But to be able to trust that, even for them, somehow it will, be, it will apply what Paul says, that the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to the glory that God has in store for those. Uh, somehow that's got to apply to these little kids. Well, that, that scene came back to me this week, uh, actually just yesterday. And, um, but it was a little different. All of a sudden I'm praying and I'm grieving and then I have the scene again. And I didn't think that scene could get any more beautiful, but this scene was because... It was the same playground, and it was full of children, and they're all laughing and having so much fun. But now only some of them are wearing concentration camp uniforms. There's other Jewish kids that are just dressed for normal school. Uh, and then there's a bunch of Palestinian kids. Uh, a few faces that I recognized from the TV this week. Of, of, and they're all climbing on Jesus and having so much fun, and they're playing with each other as well. Which, you know, it's, it's just this unity, this shalom, this fun, kids being kids. And Jesus again turns to me and says, Greg, um, you're going to have to trust me on this one. I plan on making it up to the kids. Hang on to that hope, folks. Somehow, it, it, somehow all injustices will be answered. And we'll see in the book of Revelation, that's one of the main themes, that... Uh, the second, the, Jesus' return and even the final judgment is good news because that is what's going to make the world right. It's going to make the, 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 the gulf between where we're at now and where we are going to be when the kingdom is fully established. That will be crossed by Jesus' return, uh, his, his, his appearance, parousia, and the establishment of the eternal kingdom. Hallelujah. And, and just trust, just trust, it's going to be all worth it. He's going to make it up to the kids. Like, somehow, somehow, some way, he's a genius at this. Just what God is is all mystery. It's mystery, the transcendence. Oh, hang on to that. But we got to trust who God is and who he is as the slain little lamb who gave his life for every one of those kids, every one of those adults, every person that's being killed over in the Middle East or anywhere. And somehow in the end, because he's the all-good creator, it will end well for all of them. And I don't need to know the details just to know that is there. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Hang on to that. Oh, Hope is, in times where everything's shaking, hope is the most precious thing to have. Um, okay, as was mentioned earlier, we've got gathering groups. I want to invite you all to check out the gathering groups, be a part of that. We've got the Tuesday Musecast, uh, and come and be part of that. We have prayer up, up front if you're in the auditorium or online. You can, uh, uh, some prayer folks would love to pray with you, whatever need you might have. I encourage you to take advantage of that. And don't forget the tap party this Friday night, and check on the bulletin, find out what else is going on. And be sure you love on the world and manifest the character of God to everyone you come in contact with. Love you guys. See you later.